Well, this is the last episode of Morning Seminary. At least this season of it. I started writing this podcast a couple years ago hoping to take a light-hearted approach to Book of Mormon criticism, and I feel I've done that. After a while, though, I encountered a problem. It turns out the Book of Mormon is very boring. The doctrine is bland, and most of the stories repeat themselves. Abinadi, the brother of Jared, Samuel the Lamanite, so many well-known Mormon tales I never got to last barely a page and mostly repeat the same concepts I already covered. So aside from quibble about the book's doctrinal shortcomings, something other podcasters do better than I can, I found it difficult to tell more Book of Mormon stories in new and interesting ways. It sucks. I wish I had better news. So, I've taken the advice of some friends and decided to make this last episode about my exit from Mormonism. This is my deconversion story. Like all good Mormon boys, I grew up planning to spend two years as a missionary. I had no burning desire to go, but it was a rite of passage that my life wouldn't be complete without. Mormon girls don't date guys who don't go on missions. So once I turned 19, I was off to Minnesota to bike around in a white, short-sleeved, button-up shirt and baptize as many people as I could. Side note, I got really homesick. So much so that I wanted to die. One of my earliest missionary journal entries expressed a desire for God to take me home that night in my sleep. There's this assumption among missionaries, at least when I was a missionary, that dying on your mission all but guarantees a place in heaven making death a welcome end to the struggles and risks inherent to life. I literally asked God to kill me in my sleep so I could go to heaven, and I'm not the only missionary to do that. Anyway, missionaries read the scriptures a lot. During my first six weeks, me and my mission companion, the guy I lived with 24-7, spent two hours each morning reading the Book of Mormon cover to cover. The idea was to gain a stronger testimony of it, so I could draw from a deeper well of faith while proselytizing. Despite all that reading and prayer though, nothing changed. I wasn't skeptical about it or anything, but my sincere prayers and surrender to God's will resulted in zero stronger feelings about the book. It just wasn't happening. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Probably should have been a sign, but instead I just blamed myself for failing to gain a conviction of the truth. I dug in even further reading the Book of Mormon and the Bible side by side for hours each day to gain an unshakable conviction of the truth. During one of these scripture studies though, something interesting happened. I came across Isaiah chapter 29 verse 11. And the vision of all has become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. This is an important scripture, but to understand its importance, we need to talk about the topical guide. There would be a combined concordance and topical guide listing hundreds of subjects, a Bible dictionary, maps, and a new format. New chapter headings would be written, and all of it in harmony with the sacred message of the Old and the New Testaments. Studying the scriptures is hard. It takes focus and determination to interpret what can be dense prose, and interscriptural connections can only happen once you've read them all. That is, unless you have a map of all the scriptures. This is where the topical guide comes in. 
Like a concordance, the topical guide groups scriptures by topic to help readers corroborate doctrines and establish context. There was a spirit of inspiration brooding over their work, and those working with it talked often of how it was blessed. There were humbling spiritual experiences. That was Boyd K. Packer, talking about the inspired mission of the Topical Guide. I think it's fair to say that he believed the Topical Guide to be a product of spiritual inspiration, much like the scriptures themselves. The Guide, therefore, is a reliable study aid because inspired men and women assembled it with God's guidance. I too believe this as a missionary. So with this mindset, I decided to look up Old Testament scriptures foretelling Joseph Smith's mission to restore the gospel. Prophecies about Jesus' true church written before he was even born. Three Old Testament references for Joseph Smith appear in the topical guide. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. And then Isaiah chapter 29 verse 11, which I already mentioned, the one about cannot read a sealed book. Between Malachi's messenger and Isaiah's rod of Jesse, neither exactly smacks of an obvious Joseph Smith connection. You would have had to know about him already for these scriptures to matter. Who knows though? Mormons think Isaiah is one of the hardest prophets to understand. So impenetrably obscure and vague that it confounds apostates like me to prevent us from twisting his words. What an idea. A book of scripture so confusing that it's pure. Illustrating the confusion of Isaiah, the topical guide lists five separate footnotes for Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, the short one about the stem of Jesse. This ensures readers are carefully steered toward an appropriate church-sanctioned interpretation, and even still it's just not that compelling. The real kicker is Isaiah chapter 29 verse 11. There's this mysterious sealed book that can't be read by the learned. It sounds vague, but it's actually an obscure reference to Joseph Smith history. You see, early on when the Book of Mormon was being written, no one believed Joseph Smith actually found any Egyptian characters and translated them from an ancient world. They thought he was a charlatan making it all up. And the only way to convince them otherwise was to find an expert on Egypt who could verify that the writings were real. That expert was Charles Anthon. Martin Harris takes evidently some, a piece of paper with some Book of Mormon characters on it, along with some translations, presumably a few, few lines or more that Joseph has translated. He goes to New York City where he visits a renowned professor named Charles Anton, or Anton. Now, Anton was, uh, everybody grants, one of the foremost scholars in antiquities. So the story goes like this. Joseph Smith gives his scribe, Martin Harris, a piece of paper with some Book of Mormon characters scrawled on it. Characters that Mormon, author of the Book of Mormon, declares to be reformed Egyptian. And we have written this record in the characters which are called among us reformed Egyptian. With his document of characters in tow, Martin pays a visit to Professor Anthon to verify the goods. He tells the story in his own words in a book called Joseph Smith History. I went to the city of New York and presented the characters. 
Professor Anthony stated that the translation was correct, more so than any he had before seen translated from the Egyptian. He also gave me a certificate certifying that they were true characters and that the translation was also correct. Professor Anthony is reportedly blown away by the ancient Egyptian he sees before him, and he declares it with a certificate of authentication that he gives to Martin Harris. But then something happens. I was just leaving the house when Mr. Anthon called me back and asked me how the young man found the gold plates. I answered that an angel of God had revealed it unto him. He then said, let me see that certificate. I took it out of my pocket and gave it to him when he took it and tore it to pieces. Professor Anthon couldn't deny that the characters were authentic, but he wasn't going to let some religious kook just say they came from an angel. Professor Anthon said that if I would bring the plates to him, he would translate them. I informed him that part of the plates were sealed, and that I was forbidden to bring them. He replied, I cannot read a sealed book. <laughs> Suddenly, this odd Old Testament scripture foretells a deeply specific story in church history. Could Isaiah have really seen Professor Anthon turn down a chance to see an ancient text just because part of it was sealed? What an awakening that must have been. Just imagine that for yourself. To be an obscure boy, as Joseph called himself, and then to find yourself the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The church's position on Isaiah's scripture is clear, I think. It's a prophecy about Charles Anthon. This was a lot to take in for me. I was excited, but it kind of felt too good to be true. And I was a diligent little missionary. Compelling as the scripture may have been, it felt meaningless, dishonest even, to throw around Old Testament references without knowing their full context. So, I read the surrounding verses. Almost immediately it became clear that Isaiah wasn't talking about Joseph Smith at all. He just wasn't. Unlike the lack of impression I got reading the Book of Mormon, I was positive Isaiah was prophesying about the inability of the wicked to perceive spiritual things. The sealed book represents their blindness. I don't know. Read it yourself, I guess. As far as I could tell, though, the only way for the scripture to mean what the topical guide suggests is to completely untether its words from any concrete notion of meaning, which in turn makes every scripture a reference to everything. Anyway, a read through the surrounding chapters confirmed my suspicions. The topical guide was overreaching to stun readers with a connection between Joseph Smith and Isaiah. For the first time, I felt misled. That happened at the end of year one of my two-year mission, and it was devastating to me. I actually called my family and asked to go home, which was a big deal since missionaries back then were only allowed to call home on Christmas and Mother's Day. My parents, along with my mission president and a host of other missionaries, told me to pray until I got an answer. A better answer. I spent about four hours a day over the next week praying hoping to get an answer to my problem. Nothing really happened, but I eventually decided that being on a mission was as good a place to be as any, whether or not the church was true. So I stayed. I wasn't happy about it, but coming home early from a mission is dangerous business. People get upset. It was ultimately safer for me to stick around, but from that day on, I replaced the phrase, I know the church is true, with phrases like, I believe the church can bring you happiness. Once my two years were up, 
I went back home to Utah and managed about three months of church attendance before I just couldn't bring myself to care. My heart wasn't in it anymore, and I wondered if it ever had been given my brute force opposition silencing approach to gaining a testimony. I stopped going to church. I had my first drink, lost my virginity, watched R-rated movies, drank coffee, bad boy stuff. Girls like bad boys, okay? Only afterward did I learn there were two Charles Anthon stories, one written in 1832 and another from 1838. The first account makes no mention of either Charles Anthon or the phrase, I cannot read a sealed book. Those details were added six years later, after Martin Harris had been excommunicated from the church and wasn't around to challenge them. I also discovered a letter Charles Anthon wrote upon hearing about his inclusion in the Book of Mormon, in which he says he never authenticated anything, and that he knew right away that it was a hoax. Plus, Anthon wasn't even a scholar of Egyptian, so what was he doing authenticating these characters in the first place? To reiterate though, the deception was the topical guide's sophistry of Isaiah. The lies I discovered afterward only confirmed suspicions that would never have been raised had I not seen the church twist scripture. They presented a conclusion and bent reality to fit. It may seem nitpicky to raise such a row about a single verse from Isaiah, but the church's rhetoric invites this kind of criticism by using circular reasoning to justify truth claims. One proof that the Book of Mormon is true, they say, is how biblical voices prophesy about it. References to the Old Testament and New Testament are so numerous and overwhelming throughout the Book of Mormon that one can come to a definitive conclusion by logic that a human intellect could not have conceived of them all. Then, when it falls apart upon closer investigation, they tell critics to spend more energy on Jesus. But more important than logic is the confirmation by the Holy Spirit that the story of the Book of Mormon is true. They almost brag about the irrefutability of Book of Mormon evidence, only to dismiss its importance. It feels like taunting. Oh, the things I could show you about the Book of Mormon. Oh well, not important. I think this is why my study of the scriptures shattered my illusions about the church so thoroughly. Instead of finding all these ironclad gimmies and grand slams, I found desperate connections held together by masking tape and shame. If you can't see this is true, well then, I don't know what to tell you. You're lost. My doubts about church doctrine came solely from their own sources. I wasn't reading outside criticism or anti-Mormon material. I wasn't committing any of the sins Mormons hint at when people leave the church. No, I was trying to gain a stronger testimony, and it was my close inspection of the doctrine that revealed its flaws. I created Morning Seminary to show how the Book of Mormon itself is more than capable of challenging the church's truth claims about it. When the book happens to make sense, which isn't often, it's inconsistent with what the church actually teaches. It's even inconsistent with itself. But when people object to those inconsistencies in good faith, they are written off as hopelessly critical, morally lazy, and or spiritually blind. Always, always the fault is on the individual and not the church. It's incredibly frustrating. Anyway, that's all for this season of Morning Seminary. Thanks to everyone who listened and to my two patrons. I've 
really enjoyed telling Book of Mormon stories in my own way, and I hope they can be of some help to people either leaving the church or who are interested in hearing these stories in their real context. As for me, I'm going to take a little break from all this Mormondom and focus on other things for a while. If season two happens, it'll deal with Old Testament stories, but only if I get around to it. We'll see. Until then, adieu. Being a professor, I know how this goes. The last thing on earth you want to do is confess that you don't know everything in the world.